camera speeds. Hey, Mark. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Focus Pro Network podcast. I am your host, Dennis Kunell, and on today's episode, I am humbled and honored to talk to Local 600 first AC and founder of the Black and Blue blog, Evan Luzai. Evan is based in the Washington DC area in the United States, and we'll talk about how Evan got a start in the industry and how his blog came alive. We'll cover some equipment related topics, and Evan will also let us know what his somewhat unusual roles were on HBO's Watchmen, as well as the new Disney Plus original series, WandaVision. All of that and much, much more on today's episode of the Focus Polar at Work podcast. Oh, I should also mention, since Evan is a great resource of knowledge and really fun to talk to, this episode may be a little longer than usual. Still, enjoy. Evan, thank you uh, very, very much for being uh, on the show. And um, I'm very honored that you are my second guest, you know, the founder of The Black and Blue, which I've read for the first time, I want to say what, six or seven years ago or so. Um, definitely found a lot of very helpful information on that. Um, so yeah, I'm very honored um, to have you on. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. I'm, you know, I'm humbled to be your second guest and I'm thankful for your readership over the years. So uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation here. Yeah, so do I. Um, well, let's start. Um, just, you know, I'm, I'm sure you have been asked this a million times, but give us a little bit of a, a rundown. Like, how did you how did you end up in the film industry? How did that uh, how did that come along? Did you was it something you always wanted to do? Um, did you study for it? You know, how did you end up here? Yeah, so I would say since about eighth grade, um, which in America is probably, you know, I was probably like 11 years old or something like that, I had always wanted to, I knew I wanted to be some type of filmmaker. Like that's really when I discovered cameras and like making short films and like stop motion movies at home and that kind of thing. And so all through middle school, high school, I was kind of working towards that, you know, making movies with my friends. Um, nothing serious, you know, just like really silly sketches and that kind of thing. Um, but I knew when I applied for college that I wanted to major in film or do something like that. And then post-college work in the film industry. Um, so I ended up going to Virginia Tech uh, for a communications degree with a film and media theory was like sort of the subcategory of my major. And that was great for learning things like film history um, you know, genres, uh, what it means to direct like auteur theory, like a lot of the like really academic level of filmmaking. But it wasn't that great in terms of, you know, how does a dolly work? Um, you know, what does an 18K mean? Uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, so I didn't really have a lot of practical experience in terms of making movies. I knew a lot about the theory, about like what a medium close-up was and that kind of thing. And so on a, I was on a summer break my junior year of college, and I noticed that one of the uh, football players of our local team, the now known as the Washington football team, um, was financing a feature film being shot like 30 minutes from my house. And so I looked up the production company. I read this on his blog, by the way. So I looked up the production company. I emailed the CEO of that production company. 
and gave him my resume and was essentially like, you know, I'm first of all, I'm a huge fan of the team. Uh, And second of all, I've always wanted to work in film. I live close by. I'll work for free. And of course he said, sure, you know, like free labor. Why not? Yeah, of course. (laughs) Right. So uh, he forwarded uh, my information on to the production coordinator. She got back to me and said, we'd love to have you. Which department do you want to PA in? And the options were, I think, like locations, grip department, uh, general set PA, and camera department. Well, of course I chose camera department because I thought like that's where the action is. Not that those other departments aren't important or interesting, um, but camera was certainly the most appealing sounding to me in my sort of naivete. Yeah. So I got on set of this movie. It was called Ghosts Don't Exist. And I came on as the camera PA and there was no second AC. So I was kind of the de facto second AC. And early on in that shoot, it may have even been the first day, the first AC who's... Um, was a really great mentor to me. His name is Matt Kelly. He's an operator now. Gave me Doug Hart's The Camera Assistant's Manual. And he was like, you need to read this. Like, if if you want to do a good job with what we're about to get into. Like, he knew what was around the corner. Like, I had no idea. But he knew we were getting into, like, 12-plus hour days for a month shooting a low-budget horror movie. So I went home and I and uh, Doug Hart does a great job of breaking down in his book like chapters of you know first AC, second AC. So I skipped ahead to kind of what I thought was like the most important things, um, so slating that kind of thing. And I remember the first time that I actually did a tail slate, uh, the first AC kind of looked to me and was like, "Oh, you actually read the book?" And I was like, "Well, yeah, that's why you gave it to me, right?" Um, but I guess, I guess not everybody reads the book that. Uh, that they get handed to. So I was really lucky on that shoot to have a really good first experience. And I met a good friend of mine um, who is the DP and we've actually been working ever since then. And right after that feature film, I kind of got hired as a utility on another feature film, like a week later. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And that was kind of how I got started. And so you were then a second AC for, for many, many years. And when did you, uh, when did you become a first AC? Did you was that a very uh, quick process to become a first AC once you made that decision, or you know did you uh, simultaneously be a second and first for for a while? Like how did that work? So I actually wasn't a second AC for that long. Okay. Um, uh, I did the second AC on that first job. I was a camera utility on a feature right after that uh, first movie, and then I got hired to do like first AC on a 48 hour film fest. And that was sort of my first experience doing it and pulling focus and everything. And then somehow I fluked into first AC'ing a feature film uh, that was shot out in Las Vegas uh, with the guy from that first movie. And kind of ever since then, you know, I've sort of just been a first AC. I I certainly still second AC. every now and then and especially early on I, I did a lot more seconding but from very early on I was kind of honing my focus pulling skills and and still working as a first while also working as a second and then it, at least in my market there's a lot of overlap in terms of you know many jobs just hire in AC and there's not necessarily a first and a second AC right. uh, so you kind of have to learn all the skills all at the same time 
Yeah, I bet that really came in handy um, during this last year of uh, the pandemic, where it was just really, I, there were so many productions that said, well, usually, usually we have a second AC, but on this one, you're going to be on your own because we have to limit the amount of people that are on set right now. It's like, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, yeah. And well, and then they started rolling in even, even more jobs too. You know, it's like we, well, usually we'd have data and a second AC, but can you do all three? You know, that kind of thing. And you go like, yeah, can you, can you pay me for all three of those jobs? <laughs> no, oh, that's too bad. Um, right. uh, yeah, but, uh, so, but it seems like you are doing, cause you just, you know, you just mentioned the, the market you're in, you do live in the Washington DC area still, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, um, you, so you've been a seeing movies, so features, uh, documentaries, um, I assume some commercials, um, corporate stuff, pretty much all of it. Yeah. All of the above. All of the above. Um, yeah. and, and anybody uh, who has a budget and can pay me, <laughs> that's like, everyone who wants to pay for my soul can't have it. Um, right. <laughs> uh, I've also seen that you now uh, have done or you started doing some VFX work. Um, we're going to get to that a little bit later. Um, but between all of those um, types of production, um, is there is there something you want to do more of in the future? Or are you happy with with the mixture? Um, I mean, I would love to do more narrative work. You know, I I think my heart and soul is in doing movies and short films and stuff where you're really telling a story. Uh, unfortunately that stuff doesn't always pay the best. And it does, it's not always around. I mean, especially in uh, the DC market, a lot of that narrative stuff kind of comes in very short term uh, to get you know, their shot of the White House or their shot of the Washington Monument. And then they're gonna go back to where most of their crew base is or where they have better tax incentives to shoot the rest of the film. Mm. So it, the, the work's not always available to me. But that said, I think there's a lot of overlap too between like high-end commercial work and movies. Like both of them kind of work at somewhat slower paces because um, there's a lot more diligence and you have to be a lot more careful in terms of things like focus pulling, for instance, right? Like if you're shooting a documentary or like a low-budget commercial where you're like rushing around trying to shoot a bunch of stuff, a lot of times it's kind of like, well, get in focus what you can and like we'll cut around it. But if you're working on these high-end commercials or these movies, I mean, it's kind of like getting it in focus is the bare minimum. And then there's, did the rack focus go too fast? Did you wait too long of a beat before doing it? Um, and so there's a lot more kind of careful consideration in the work. And so I, I do find a lot of the same satisfying nature of working on narrative stuff in these high-end commercials that are more readily available for me to work on, at least where I'm at. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, uh, in the United States, I'm for the most part, uh, worked on, you know, commercials, corporate stuff, image films, whatever you want to call them. Um, and now that I moved back to Germany, um, I, cause I, I'm just like you, I, my heart is, is beating for the narrative side of things. And now getting back into it, it's a whole new ball game. It's really, there's all of a sudden there's more like an art form to it where it's like no you're actually like you're influencing the image and you're you're having a say in what this is going to look like and on the first feature film that i did um back here in germany the the dp like 
constantly he was like dude you gotta be slower man like the pace of this movie is just a little bit slower so just take your time and it, it's okay <laughs> um and i was so used to just you know if you lose focus on a on a smaller commercial you just try to find it as quickly as you can um Absolutely. and here it was like nah, dude it's okay like take your time you know that that rack we, we you know this is you know feel the scene it was it was more of a, a an eye-opening moment of like oh i'm actually I'm part of telling this story now. I'm not just someone who keeps things in focus. Um, but that brings me to the next question. Are you are you generally being very happy uh, and satisfied being an AC? Or is there are you working towards maybe becoming a DP or an operator yourself at some point? So the way I see it is that there's two sort of career paths that you can take in this industry. This industry is very hierarchical. Um, and so there's a very obvious vertical path, which is for camera department, you would get hired as a camera PA, move up to a utility, uh, move up to a loader, then to a second AC, first AC operator and DP. Mm. And you can, you can stop at any of those tiers if you want. Like you can have a great career being a first AC. You can have a great career being an operator. Of course you can have a great career being a DP as well. Um, the alternative and sort of the path that I view myself on is that you can, instead of growing inside the department vertically, you can grow sort of the scope of the projects that you're working on. Mm. So going from like the used car dealership commercial from down the street to working on national brands like Coca-Cola or something like that, or even global brands. And uh, so I'm very happy being a first AC. Like I think it's a really good mix of the skills that I just kind of cultivated throughout my life without knowing, you know, I'm very technically inclined. I'm very detail oriented. I like to be creative, but I don't necessarily want all the responsibility of the creative message on me. And so being a first AC kind of lets me dabble in all those different areas. And my goal is to be the best first AC that I can be on kind of the biggest projects that I can get access to. So I do, I, you know, I do operate on occasion, um, mostly like kind of interview stuff, you know, be a B camera on a slider mm. or um, for friends projects. And same with like DP, like I've DP'd a few things, but usually it's very small stuff. Um, just because, I, you know, I really like firsting and my goal is, as I mentioned, to work on bigger and bigger projects rather than kind of stay at the level of projects I'm on, but upgrade my my status in the department, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. If, if someone would have asked me that question, I think I would have given the exact same answer. Um, <laughs> with, the, with the one thing being, um, I think, um, because it's true what you said, um, that, you know, you, you can stay a second AC or you can stay a first AC and like make a career out of it. Um, however, I, I would say, um, now being back in Germany, I would say that that being a second AC, a career second AC in Germany is probably way harder than it is in the United States because I think in the United States the rates are just way higher, um, and I think uh, in Germany and then you know in some countries even in Eastern Europe the the rates are are way way worse than they are even here in Germany. Um, so. As a first, I think you, you that works. You can you can make it work. Um, as a second AC, I think you'd be struggling. If you're a 45 year old second AC in in Germany, then I think people will start stop hiring you because they're gonna feel like oh he, he 
just wasn't able to like get you know to better places <laughs> yeah i think over here it's very similar unless you're in like the big markets you know like new york or la um because every now and then i do get kind of down on myself right thinking like uh like i'm still a first ac like should i be trying harder to be an operator or be a dp and what has always helped me is like go put in the behind the scenes of one of your favorite movies like a big blockbuster or something like that and go try and find a shot of the guy or the girl who's doing the slate and a lot of times they have like gray hair yeah you know and so that you know i'm 33 years old so i always look at that and i go okay you know like first of all that guy or girl is uh still making a career out of this and also like i have i have time and there's i have time to kind of grow into the goals that i've set forth yeah yeah, I feel like that's that's actually great advice. Yeah, every now and again we should just all go and, and watch uh, behind the scenes uh, stuff from our favorite movies. That's probably a really good idea. Um, uh, that brings me to something else because sometimes I, I see behind the scenes pictures of uh, um, of really big movie sets, and I noticed one thing is that their cameras usually look like a total mess. And so, you know, I'm always trying to like um, come up with the cleanest build possible. And then I have the feelings like, man, you know, they're shooting like whatever Iron Man or something like that. And the cameras look look like a complete mess. And I really wonder uh, how it works on, on, on the really big movie sets where they just like, dude, we don't, we don't have the time to like wrap all of this up and make it nice. Like this just needs to work all day. And, uh, you know, and if we need to pull something, we pull it. It doesn't really matter what it looks like as long as it works. Um, I don't know. What do you think? How, how does that work? Yeah, I, no, I think your hypothesis is correct. I think a lot of it's probably utility, just kind of like, uh, oh, we have to prep like three or four cameras here. Like, let's just get all this GAC on there and let's get it working. And is it going to hold up while we're shooting in the desert for Iron Man? You know, is it going to hold up while we launch explosions near it and stuff? Then who cares how it looks for behind the scenes? Yeah, well, maybe I should actually... Uh... I don't know, follow that approach. I think it's probably a good idea. But man, for some reason, I just, uh, when I see so many cables like sticking off a camera, it's like, oh, I, I'm kind of cringing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, pro- it's probably a smart thing. I do think that maybe more of a younger generation sort of thing, though, too, is that a lot of those ACs that are probably working on things like Iron Man and stuff like that are, are a little bit older. And so they maybe weren't used to like making builds for Instagram. You know what I mean? Oh, very good point. Um, so I, I see a lot of the younger generation focusing more on the the aesthetics of what a camera looks like, you know, like putting patches on it and that kind of stuff, sort of personalizing it, um, which I'm not against. You know, I think a clean camera looks better than a messy camera. But at the same time, if a clean camera is not working, I'd rather have the messy camera that works. Yeah, I agree. But it's uh, but it is true. It is true. I'm uh, I'm guilty of that myself. Sometimes it's like, man, I need it for the gram. It just needs to, it, need, it needs to look good. It doesn't <laughs> can't help it. Um, yeah, and you get it perfect, and then uh, the sound guy shows up in the morning with his wireless hop and his time code thing, and it's you got to undo all your gear ties. You know, it is true. It happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, well, um, while we're diving into this uh, whole, you know, um, technical side of things and um, maybe the equipment side of things, uh, do you own any equipment yourself? Um, and I mean, you know, not the, the typical bits and pieces, the, the little brackets and mounts and whatever we have. Um, I mean, like, a, you know, a monitor, do you have your own fizz, uh, anything along those lines? 
Yeah, so I have, I have a couple things. Um, I don't own a Fizz. I've been looking at one lately, um, and my eye keeps drawing to the, the C-Pro, C-Motion, so maybe our, our friends over there can hook me up. Just kidding. Um, not really. Uh, no, no, they can hook me up too. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I own a monitor. I own a 703 Bolt. Uh, I own a Teradek that syncs with that, so I kind of have like the complete kit. Um, I really think every AC, every focus puller at least, should own their own monitor. I really think it's a just it's great business. It makes great business sense because you know it's really easy to rent to productions because they almost kind of expect you to have one. A lot of DPs expect you to have one. It's great for your workflow because you can kind of personalize it how you like, and you can very quickly jump in and be comfortable with the image that you're looking at for pulling focus. Um, so that's why I like it. I, a lot of times I'll put it on shoots where, you know, they may not have very much money to rent it, but it just kind of makes my life easier. Um, what else do I own? I have like a manual follow focus that I really don't think I've ever rented it out once. It's kind of like the security blanket. If the fizz goes down, you know, at least we have something, but it just kind of sits in my bag. Do you remember the last time uh, you, you used it, the manual focus? The last time I used it, I went to put it on the rods and like the lens was too fat or something like that. So we just ended up pulling off the barrel. <laughs> oh man, because uh, I remember, I think Brian Eichelmeyer just uh, asked uh, that question a few weeks ago on Instagram. He's like, when was the last time you used your manual uh, follow focus? And he got a, um, a, a boatload of responses and it was interesting. A lot of them were like, I don't know, man, like six years ago. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I did find that interesting. I responded, and so the last time I used my manual follow focus, that happened. But I did actually use like an actual manual follow focus, like an FF4 or something like that. I don't know, back in October. Okay, that's um, quite recently. Yeah, because we had like an A and a B camera. One had the fizz, and the B camera was supposed to be just you know operator pulling his own focus, and then for whatever reason, the B camera ended up on the dolly shot where they needed me to pull. So I was walking alongside pulling and. Uh, took me back you know yeah um and so let me dwell in on that because i own a 703 bolt myself um mm -hmm. when you made the decision to buy that um particular monitor was it did you test out other monitors did you um ever consider buying maybe a tv logic i actually owned a 5.6 inch tv logic before i bought my 703 bolt um, and it kind of got long in the tooth, you know, it got to the point where I felt bad charging productions for it because it was kind of like, oh, now I'm just renting it to you because I want to make money, not because I actually think it's the best tool for the job, mm -hmm. which is not a position I like to be in. Um, I didn't test a lot, you know, I didn't do like a shootout with monitors or anything like that, but I'd worked enough jobs with other options and really liked the the workflow of the 703, like the, the OS of it, the page system. I like, I like the little joystick that I can zoom in on things quickly. So by the time I wanted to uh, sort of upgrade my TV logic, I had the answer just from all the other different jobs I'd done where, you know, somebody else had brought the gear or they wanted to rent specific gear. Because mm -hmm. I, I, I always feel like the, the 703... I mean, what I really love about it is that it's so unbelievably bright. Um, it mm -hmm. re it really helps uh, in in certain conditions. 
Um, I think, and please tell me uh, if you agree with me or disagree, I'm really curious. I think uh, that small HD, in terms of pulling focus and just seeing the image in terms of is it sharp or not, gives you the best the best tools to to view that. Um, it the the brightness is incredible, even though I think the new uh, TV logic is also very bright, maybe even a little bit brighter. Um, but what I what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't recommend a small HD any small HD monitor to a DP uh, or an operator. Um, for some reason, I have the feeling that the TV logic just I don't know, create some more, like that's what the image actually is supposed to look like in terms of, um, you know, the sheer beauty of it or whatever you want to call it, like just the image quality. Uh, and I think small HD can't really compete with that, um, but it does do a better job of like looking sharp. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And I, for the most part, agree with you. Like I think the 703, uh, the 1303, like their whole lineup has really good, tools for focus pulling like they're peaking and everything like that mm. um i've heard the newer tv logics can kind of match up to it but you know i think they kind of got left behind and now it's to the point where well i trust small hd so like why do i want to like take a flyer on tv logic if i already have something that i know works but i agree with you about the dp thing like i always tell uh, DPs that I find like looking over my shoulder I'm like oh you know like don't trust the color on this yeah, like this yeah. is this is designed for me to know like what's in focus and and that's about it you know like we can check exposure sort of you know because I can pull up the exposure tools but like if it looks green to you like that's because of this monitor not because of what you're lighting the one monitor I might recommend to like operators though that small HD makes is I think the 503 is like an is a really nice little sort of operator's monitor that you can sort of pull off the handle or um, mount it on the handle and then have it off to the side for like easy rig stuff. Mm. But I also think at that point, you know, it's it's more just a viewfinder to make sure that you have the composition you want. Like, I again, I wouldn't recommend to them like, hey, you know, use this as your end-all be-all for color and exposure and accuracy and that kind of thing. Mm. I'm always curious about this. Do you use the peaking on your 703? Uh, I do use the peaking on the 703 um, at a very low level. I think it's like usually set at around three or four. Okay, that's what I was going to ask is what level you have it at. Yeah. Why, I what keep, do you, what I do you keep mine at one. At one? Wow, <laughs> even less, huh? Because um, yeah. I think it gets, it, gets, it gets incredibly sharp very quickly and then kind of everything looks sharp. And it's even like I even think that when you look at the 703 or any small HD for that matter um, of the later generations, um, when you look at them and even with just the tiniest amount of peaking and then you look at any other monitor after, everything looks soft for the first 10 seconds. It's kind of like, oh my, yes. what is, what's up with this monitor? And you go like, oh, okay, I, I got it. There's no peaking. Um, right. And do you use the, um, what do they call it? The focus assist, I believe. Um, do you use that as well? Very rarely. I used it, I think, um, most recently I did a short film that was like black and white. So I used it because I thought that was actually really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part, I keep peaking on, I keep it low. Um, because like you said, especially on wider lenses, 
you know, you can really get in trouble where peaking says everything's sharp. And then like you say, you go check out video village and it's like, Oh, I'm actually, you know, three feet critical behind where I need to be. Um, or something like that. So yeah, I don't use the focus assist too much, but I, I do really like the peaking. Uh, I do use the focus assist. Um, um, mainly when, you know, when you, uh, when your subject has very smooth skin, um, uh, it happens to like children, for example, um, where sometimes, you know, bl you know, a blonde child, um, there's no contrast in, in that face. There's no wrinkles there. Like everything is just smooth. And then uh, sometimes I do set the, the focus assist to black and white and uh, give it a little bit of that that yellow color so you can just see like, okay, there's there's some sprinkle there, like you're know, right by the eye. So um, I feel like that, mm. that does help every now and again. But uh, yeah, for the most part, it's it's peaking on a on a very low level i'm with you there yeah that's it that's a good idea i might start trying that oh and then what i really love is that you know you just like you said you, you just hit the joystick you zoom in on uh, that that helps tremendously <laughs> you know in many scenes yeah i mean most of the time if i'm pulling off my 703 i have my left hand on that joystick and then my right hand is on the focus wheel and then that way like in the middle of a take i can even zoom in and sort of reposition and look at things oh um, but that brings me to the next question in terms of like, do you have a go-to technique? Do you, uh, do you like to use range finders a lot? Um, do you still, you know, use the good old tape measure? Um, what's your, what's your go-to, um, technique for, for pulling focus? I think like most people listening these days, my go-to is probably pulling off the monitor mm -hmm. just cause it's the world we live in now. Um, but I do still pull kind of the old school way too. You know, I still pull tape. I don't get, I don't really work with a lot of range finders and that's mostly because of a budget issue, not because I have any technical reason I don't like them or anything like that. Like I actually do like them a lot, um, but it can be hard to justify on some of the shoots I end up doing. That said, there are shoots, you know, if I have a shoot coming up that I know is like steady cam, long walk and talks or like really intense dolly moves you know like maybe a 20 24 foot dolly move that's like a crash into like talon or something like that mm. I'll, I'll push for like a cinder tape or something like that um i saw on your website you have like the focus bug which i've been really wanting to try out um i just haven't had the right project to get it on but in terms of pulling tape um yeah I, if I have the time, I do still like to pull tape and, um, I usually use my laser mm. rather than the tape just cause it's a little more discreet. And I think the reason I like to do that is for two reasons. So one very early in my career, that's all I, however, I pulled was like measuring distance and stuff like that. So that's a skill that I built up and I don't want to lose that skill. So if I'm constantly measuring things throughout the day, it kind of keeps my awareness of like okay, here's what six feet looks like. Here's what eight feet looks like. Here's what 10 feet looks like. And the only way to keep that skill up is by practice, yeah. right? So even if I pull the tape and I never use that distance, like I find it useful in terms of just that, just keeping that skill sharp in the back of my mind. And then the other reason is I like to pull tape to have what I refer to as a home base. So a home base is like, if I'm filming an actor sitting at a table and I measure like, let's say he's six feet away. 
So throughout the scene, he may he or she may do like a lot of leaning in and out of the focal plane because mm-hmm. maybe they're like eating or something like that. So they're going to lean over, like take a bite of their food, and they're going to lean back because like they got some dramatic news or something like that. Well, if you're pulling off of the monitor, it's really not uncommon, especially with the very shallow depth of field we get these days with like fast lenses, full frame, that kind of thing. It, it's not uncommon to get lost when pulling focus. Mm. And what I mean by loss is like, you have no idea, like, are you too deep or are you too shallow? Like, all you know is that you're out of focus, but like, which way do you make the correction? So if I have a home base, I can always go back to that and be like, okay, well, I know six feet is like close to where I need to be. Mm. And it's probably going to land somewhere on their face, like whether that's the ear or the nose. And then from there, I can know which way I need to adjust. And so if I don't have that six feet, like, you can just, like I find getting lost, I can just end up way off. And then that's when you have like Video Village starts howling, that things are out of focus, <laughs> and then it's not good for anybody. Okay. Um, d- d- but do you do you feel like um, it also really depends on, you know, on, on kind of like what you're shooting? Because I have the feeling um, when working on, on a documentary, for example, um, with this, the modern kind of style of filming, A lot of handheld, you know, everyone wants to shoot wide open usually. Um, and sometimes I have the feeling that it's actually a wanted uh, thing that you're not too perfect, that it that it feels like, you know, the it, it almost feels like uh, the operator is like pulling him or herself um, and they're, they're more like finding focus. So I had DPs telling me, it's like, you know, try not to nail it like try to find it like go a little bit too deep and then just go back just a little just find it and make it like breathe and feel natural do you have that same um feeling that there's just a difference in like whatever it is you're shooting oh totally and i've had that same conversation with dps and you know i think as focus pullers it's we have to be told that like that's not going to be our natural thing like I, my natural inclination is like you hired me to keep it in focus so i'm gonna like fight to the death to do that yeah. but as soon as they tell me that it's like okay cool well you know then i get to sort of relax a little bit more um there's one director that i work with a lot who he really likes that style and he's often like next to me at the monitor and he'll just say things like it's okay if it goes out of focus like let it go out of focus and um yeah and on those shoots like you know i'm probably not pulling tape uh to be accurate um maybe just to know you know and i think also pulling tape while i'm thinking about this talking about this it's also helpful for if you ever need to like match a shot or like come back to a shot or every now and then the dp might ask you you know three shots later like hey how far away were we on that one close-up and it's good to know that distance But yeah, no, I, I agree with your assessment that these days there's a lot of that kind of verite style, um, especially in commercials where they want it to look like a lifestyle documentary almost. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, I mean, we, we, we just talked about this a little bit, but, you know, in a way, um, so much about being uh an ac is about establishing habits in any sort of way um uh, do you have some good habits that you think you've established that that help you um throughout pretty much every day you're on set yeah i think that's a really 
great question and a great succinct way to kind of describe what makes a good AC is so, like almost everything I do ends up being a habit and that's what makes you quick and dependable and diligent is by continually doing things sort of the same way or the right way and then getting into a habit of it. Um, so a couple of things that I do, you know, if I really spent a long time thinking about it, I could probably talk about it for an hour, but just off the top of my head, a few of the things that come to mind are like at the end of every day, I reset my entire toolkit and I want to make sure that things are exactly where I need them to be so that if I'm in a rush to get something that it's not, that it's where I expect it to be. So after wrap, I always put things back where they're supposed to be. That's a good habit to get into, yeah. especially when you're under pressure. Um, you don't have much time. You need to have quick access to those things. Another one. Um, I'd never format cards if they come back to me with a mag tag on them. You know, so I think a lot of us um, have that habit where when we're shooting digital, we have like these little A001 roll numbers on pieces of tape on the side of the camera, take the card out, put the tape on the card, send it to data or DIT, whoever's doing the downloads. And I always tell them at the beginning of the first day, like if you send this back to me and that tape is on it, I'm going to send it right back to you and tell you to go check it. And if I see you like take the tape off and say, it's fine in front of me, I'm going to still tell you to go check it. Like, yeah. so, so that's one of my big habits is, I want it to come back with the tape off, and then that way I know somebody's dealt with it. That's amazing. Um, uh, there is. A, let me um, jump in real quick because I just learned mm -hmm. something recently, um, and that's now my go-to method because I really love it. Um, I have the DIT um, format the cards, but in a in a in a format that doesn't that the camera doesn't support. So I know when I put when it, you know when I put the the card into the camera and it says like I can't like this is garbage I don't know what to do with it and it's like okay I know that this card is safe like we're good to go and I can format it. Um, yeah, have have you heard of? Uh, are you talking about parachute? Uh, no, when, uh, enlighten me. Okay, so there's this uh, program called Parachute and it was created by a DIT and it's free. Um, so you spell it P-A-R-A-S-H-O-O-T for okay. anybody listening. I recommend you go get it. And what it does is you tell it, here's where I'm backing up my cards. And then once it's backed up, you tell it, I want to erase this card. So you would choose your media okay. through the program. And it will check that you've downloaded the footage to where you want to download it. And it'll give you a little thing that says, like, looks like everything's backed up. Erase card. So you can hit erase card and it does pretty much what you're saying. So it takes one of the bits on the card and flips it. So if it's one, it flips it to a zero and vice versa. Yeah. So when you put it in the camera, it comes up and it says, you have to format this card. Like we don't, we don't recognize this. But the great thing about the program is say you erase the card And then you realize afterward, like, oh, you know what? I actually, I only downloaded it to one drive. I need to download it to a second or a third drive. You can put it back in and you can say recover media and it reflips that one bit. And then all of a sudden the card can remount completely like nothing ever happened. Wow. And that's, yeah, that's why it's called a parachute. Yeah. It's kind of like a little emergency shoot. Um, 
It doesn't work for every camera system, but it works really well for Airy. It doesn't really work that well for like Sony and Canon basically, but it works really well for um, Alexa Mini and uh, some of the other, you know, more like red cameras, that kind of thing. That's cool. Well, thanks for uh, letting me know. That's, uh, you know, I love learning new things. Um, but yeah, you were talking about habits. I'm sorry, I just you know I had to jump in there. But um, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad I did. Um, but please uh, keep keep going because I'm I'm sure you have uh, a few more great habits. Yeah. So um, what else? Uh, always check that you're recording. <laughs> you know, may seem really obvious. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I'm sure we all have. I at least have a story of, you know, forgetting to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have, you know, sometimes you're, you have a clean feed on your monitor, so you can't always tell, like, just kind of peek out, see if you can see a tally lamp or something like that. Or, um, a lot of times with these cameras now, you know, the record button lights up, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, check that sticks are locked before walking away from them. So I've made that mistake several times and caused, you know, quite a bit of L and D from doing so um had a Amira fall over on me because i thought the sticks were locked and i guess i didn't turn them tight enough and you you'll spend the rest of the day questioning whether you did it or not so it's better to just make sure you did it yeah. uh, big one is when you're handing off lenses for lens swaps is do not let go of them until the other person has confirmed that they have a solid grip on it yeah. um I always put my hand behind the filter tray when I'm loading filters into them. It's a good habit to get into. So in case you miss the tray and it slips through, you want to make sure that you have your other hand to catch it. Okay, good one. Keep uh, lens cases locked, right? So you take a lens case out and you shut the lid. Either lead the lid open so people know, or if you are closing the lid, then at least put one latch so that you know, if some PA gets told to like go move that case, which they shouldn't, but if they do, they pick it up, the lenses don't go spilling out. Huh. And then I, I think the, one of the last ones I can think of is, um, you know, it's not really our department, but I do get in the habit of checking, checking in with sound and looking at audio levels and time code, just kind of, you know, at the beginning of the day, and maybe after lunch, just to make sure that they're happy with what they need and um, to make sure that all the connections are tight and working and everything like that. Because at the end of the day, like if, if the sound doesn't get recorded or gets recorded poorly, like we, we all pay for it, we may have to reshoot and that kind of thing. So yeah. we're all on the same team. Man, it, it almost seems like you've written a blog post about this at some point because uh, you had a <laughs> lot of good answers there, man. <laughs> uh, like I said, I mean, if... Really, I could just like go hour by hour and what I do through a day, and that, you know everything ends up more or less being a habit, right? That's true. Um, but speaking of your blog, I I recently read, um, and this I thought was a really I'm not a second AC anymore, and I haven't been since uh, I think 2016 or 2017. Um, but um, you had a blog post about how a second AC uh, can stand out and impress their first ACs and not only their first ACs, but, you know, their their entire department. 
Um, so uh, if you would, um, because I, I thought it was amazing. There were so many good tips and tricks and I thought, uh, man, I wish I would have uh, read this uh, a few years ago when I was still a second. Um, Thank you. Yeah, please uh, give us, you know, what, what are your tips for second ACs that really try to uh, impress their department? Um, so I know the article you're talking about and, uh, besides the ones listed there, I mean, my number one tip that I always tell sort of people that I'm training as a second AC is realize your job is more than the slate. Oh yeah. Like I've seen so many green second ACs kind of carry around the slate as if it's like their child that they can't let out of sight because something bad may happen to it. And it is a big responsibility. It is the most visible part of that job. But at the same time, if you're carrying around a slate, like you're down one hand, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so it's definitely important, but leave it behind until you need it. Like leave it on the cart or what I often do is I'll leave it near the camera. Uh, if your first AC has a front box, like leave it in the front box and d you, you don't need it until we're rolling. And a lot of times that's a very minor part of your entire day. Mm -hmm. So that's my number one tip. Like just leave the slate behind. That way you have two hands to go do all the things that your first AC needs you to do. You know, like how are you going to, if, if you're holding the slate and I say, Hey, I need the 50 mil. And then I have to like wait for you to go find a safe spot to like put down the slate. Like that's 10 seconds that I didn't need to spend watching that. Yeah. And that may seem really small, but if we're talking about maybe that happens eight times in a day. So eight times 10, that's about a minute and a half. That's one extra take at the end of the day during magic hour that maybe we lost yeah. because of these little things that add up. Um, what else? I would say realize for better or worse that there are politics and emotions and diplomacy involved in your job. And as the second AC, you're in a really tricky position where you're kind of trying to please and anticipate multiple people above you. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess what I mean by that is, so if your first AC is like having a bad day, like it's really helpful for them to just be an ear, right? Like just listen to them, let them vent and get it out. And if the DP asks you your opinion on a setup, like tread lightly, you know, some, you kind of have to read the situation. Like some DPs really do want, honest feedback and it would depend like how well you know them is this your first job with them or your 50th um but a lot of times they just want affirmation and you kind of have to read that situation like do they just are they nervous because this is a big job for them like do they just want you to say hey looks great so that they can kind of get that like little nervous energy out um so pay attention to that because i find like a lot of green acs sort of they get caught up in how friendly and communal a film set can be and sort of forget that these people that are that they see as their friends are also on some level their boss. Yeah. And you don't want to kind of damage those relationships by stepping out of the bounds that your job responsibilities kind of keep you tied to. Do, do you have the feeling that that um, because I, I get the feeling that that's a kind of like a generational uh, shift in a way, because when I started, what was it, maybe 11 years ago, I had the feeling um, that the hierarchy 
it was so much stricter you know there there was there was no mm-hmm. like i didn't as i say i didn't talk to the dp i just i just i mean i would say good morning and you know every now and again when there was really like some downtime or whatever they would ask me a question or two um but i just i just wouldn't go up and like chat with them you know there just wasn't something that that i thought was appropriate and now i have the feeling um you know it is you know generation instagram and they just feel like yeah you know you can you can go and chat to everybody um <laughs> and i i feel like yeah, that has changed in a way what do you what do you think yeah i think so and i think for the most part it's a positive change right like i'm not saying that you shouldn't be friendly with these people that are quote unquote your boss um i'm just saying you got to recognize when you know, if the DP says, what do you think of this setup? And you're like, wow, I think it looks terrible. You know, like I would never use an Astera for a backlight or something like that. I mean, you're going to hurt feelings potentially. And then you're going to maybe lose out on more work from that guy uh, because that's not what he was expecting to hear from you. Yeah. And um, so that's all I was getting at. But I, I agree with you that I have heard stories from older ACs, you know, of how intense and sort of mean people could be. And I do think that's changing in a more positive way that um, we like as an AC, I feel like I don't have to yell at people to get my job done. You know, I think there's more effective ways to sort of manage the department. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Well, can I can I just add uh, one more thing about the advice for second ACs? Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a it's kind of along the line of what we were just talking about in terms of interacting with your department. Um, one of the most important things is you should ask questions if you're unsure of anything. You know, if somebody asks you to like maybe remove the back tray of the map box and you don't know how to do it better to ask how to do it than to maybe damage it or something like that um the important part is to then remember the answer Mm. so if the first ac or somebody else takes their time to show you like okay well here's how you take it off and then they need you to do it again later in the week like you should know how to do it if they're going to get probably annoyed if they have to show you again so i think it's always important to be asking questions and like, of course, that's how we all learn and everything like that. And you shouldn't be embarrassed, um, but you should make sure that you are remembering how to do these things so that people aren't having to repeat it to you. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, definitely agree. Just listen and uh, soak it all up like a sponge and uh, try to remember everything. And I think it's a very good advice to just say, like, you know, don't be afraid of asking because, you know, there there are certain things that we just that you can't know. And I don't think there's any shame in that whatsoever. Right. And I and I would much rather have my second AC come to me and admit that they don't know something and they need help than to try and do it themselves and potentially cause a bigger delay or damage to something because they thought that I might be mad that they didn't know, you know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. And I really think in second ACs, if you're listening, um, it makes us feel great when you ask us questions because it makes us uh, feel like we can teach you a thing or two. And uh, that's always a great feeling. So please, you know, <laughs> feel free to ask. It's totally fine. Um, yeah, I agree. So uh, let's move on a little bit to uh, something that I read on your IMDB page. I read that you worked on two uh, fairly big shows 
recently uh, mm -hmm. in what I would call somewhat unusual roles as a first AC, at least from the way I uh, read it. Um, uh, you worked on uh, two shows. One was uh, Watchmen um, and the other one yeah. was uh, WandaVision, I believe, for uh, Disney+. Yes. Plus. Um, now, in for WandaVision, you were a character scanning technician and i was really wondering what a what does that mean and b uh how does that relate to being uh, a first ac so that's a good question um and technically i also worked on falcon and winter soldier too because oh. um, we they use the same technology uh except in the credits of that i'm credited as evan l-u-c-i like evan lucy so i had a nice little laugh when i saw that um <laughs> so i can't give too much away just because so much of it is still like very new intellectual property okay. um and sort of this virtual production is like a newer space and there's all this like disney magic you know they make you watch like they made me watch a whole video about signing an nda and then i had to sign an nda um oh we're gonna but, get you in trouble here trust me we're gonna do <laughs> yeah i don't even know if i'm supposed to talk about the video i had to watch uh anyways uh, so a character scanning technician was kind of like a made-up title so what i did is i helped construct a camera array that uses a technique called photogrammetry and basically what that means is if you have enough cameras pointed at a single object and you give the computer a point of reference, you know, like you can tell it like this line on the ground measures a foot, then it can use the data from those different cameras that are, you know, in a 360 to build a 3D object. Okay. And so I got hired on by a DP who kind of ended up in this world because he was shooting a bunch of 360 videos for Discovery Channel for like VR headsets and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And he got called in to do this, and he knew that I would first did for him. And I told him, like, hey, that VR stuff sounds really interesting. If you ever, something like that ever comes up, like, I would love to get into it because I think that kind of world and, like, virtual production, like, I really see uh, a sizable future for it in the film industry. So I would love to kind of get ahead of the curve. Yeah. So he brought me on not because I had any specific skills in it, but just because the skills of the first AC of a first AC would carry over well in terms of like base camera knowledge, knowledge of light, um, just, you know, diligence, attention to detail, that kind of stuff. And so for WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier and actually Loki too, we built this rig and it was supposed to be just for WandaVision. And the idea is, you know, you could put a prop in there and take a photo of it and then you'd have a 3d model. Um, and you can do it with characters too. And then it helps bridge the gap between the live action elements on set and the virtual CG environment for VFX and post-production. Did I explain that good enough? Yes. I mean, it still sounds very, very complicated. Um, but And, and for Watch, Watchmen, was that kind of like the same, the same deal? Or was that different? Watchmen was similar, but different. So WandaVision we built and it was sort of a static rig right so you like took a photo and then that was like your model for watchman we actually used uh 12 and i can talk a little bit more about this one because the vfx house that um did all the work is named boof buf 
and they actually posted like a little behind the scenes of it okay. on their website, like a little breakdown. Um, for that, for Watchman, we used 12 red cameras, red dragons, um, mounted vertically. Um, what I mean by that is like the sensor was uh, 9x16 instead of 16x9. And we built uh, built them in a 360-degree circle. We had talent in the middle of that circle. And then it was specifically calculated at certain angles by the people at Boof so that when we filmed them, they could then create a 3D model and use that talent, the performance, for a hologram in the show. Okay. And it's like this. And uh, have you seen the show? I I have seen uh, I think three episodes of Watchmen so far. I've not seen Wonder Vision. Okay, so um, in Watchmen, there's a scene where she like goes into this sort of museum, and there's like as she walks past these pedestals, like these little holograms appear, yeah. and it's people telling their story about like what happened during this historical event that's relevant to the show. So that's what we did. Is we basically filmed these little pop-up hologram guys and she could like walk through them and stuff like that. And the reason why we did it, why we did it instead of them just making it out of CG is that they wanted the natural performance of a real person. Okay. Wow. And, and so the way we did it, you also get like the actual texture of their clothes and their face and that kind of stuff, as opposed to doing some sort of mocap, it just kind of gives it a little more realistic, um, performance yeah okay and uh in terms of um being an ac was that you know are you you know are you still responsible for for the camera in the same way or is the camera you know is it a special camera is it is it rigged a certain way is there um or is you know are your duties basically the the same um there well as first i see a lot of my usual duties weren't present Uh, but it was a lot of the same sort of technical management. So especially for Watchmen, because we were working with 12 Red Dragons, and it was crucial that all of them were in sync. Mm. So we had, I think the radius of our rig was like 40 feet or something like that on this big uh, soundstage, and we had to cable all of these cameras together to sync time code, gin lock, and then, of course, fed video into like a big uh, decimator so that we can monitor them all at the same time on top of that we had to have like a single trigger so that we could run stop all 12 cameras at the same time and so a lot of my work on that was just you know testing cables running cables making sure all the cameras worked making sure all the settings were appropriate um, making sure all the media was loaded and when we had to reload media that all of it got Uh, appropriately tagged and uh, sorted so that it wasn't overwhelming for the data manager and stuff like that. Okay. For for WandaVision, it was, um, as I mentioned, more of a static rig using DSLRs. So that was a little more unique, but it was a lot of the same kind of thing of just um, running cables and making sure the cameras were at the right settings and that kind of stuff. Okay. And um, like I said, it, you're right it, i mean they were unusual roles and i have trouble explaining them to people sometimes um, um let alone friends and family when <laughs> i tell them i worked on it uh but i think my background as a first ic really helped as i mentioned just knowing cameras and knowing how light works and that kind of stuff 
Okay. And then um, just out of technical curiosity, like how do you um, how do you trigger 12 reds at the same time? That's a good question. There's this thing called an ultimote, mm -hmm. which is like pretty cool. And you can, oh, that was the one piece of cable I left out is we had to run ethernet to all the cameras. So okay. you can run this ultimote into like a switch. And then from the switch, you plug ethernet into all these red cameras and they all get an IP address. Um, and then you get the IP address for the switch Okay. sync that with the ultimote and then you just with this ultimate thing you just hit record and they you know go all down the line and you can actually change all the settings simultaneously too it's pretty cool wow that's uh, uh very impressive stuff um and did you did you go down because i think both of those shows if i'm not mistaken filmed in the in the atlanta uh, area did you go down to atlanta for that or was was your particular part shot in the dc area Uh, yeah, so I went down to Atlanta for that stuff. Okay. Because that's, um, we were at like Atlanta Metro Studios for Watchmen and then Pinewood, I think is where the Marvel stuff was. Okay. Um, which, you know, is, is also a question I wanted to ask you. Um, uh, Bill McDonald of the uh, UCLA Cinematography Department um, had just recently said on a, on a Team Deacons podcast episode, um, he said that DC used to be owned by three DPs and very few crew members. Um, I mean, first of all, do you agree with that? Um, or has it changed in DC? Um, and now that, you know, you, I think you joined the union at some point, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And so, you know, now that you get a foot in the door down in Atlanta, um, are you considering moving or are you, you happy where you are? Do you want to stay? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I haven't heard that podcast. Uh, that's pretty funny, actually, um, that DC even came up. I, I do think it's still accurate, uh, but of, of course it's more nuanced, right? Like 3DP is a little bit hyperbolic. Uh, we, we have more people than that here. <laughs> um, but relative to like New York or LA or Atlanta, like we, yeah, we are a much smaller market. And I think DC has changed some, uh, but uh, Baltimore... Baltimore and DC are about an hour away from each other. Mm. And so they, they share a lot of the same crew base and um, rental houses and that kind of thing. And Baltimore is where much of the market drifts for the kinds of projects that would be competing against New York or LA. So like a lot of the movies, um, you know, The Wire was filmed in Baltimore. House of Cards more recently was filmed in Baltimore before they moved out to... Uh, You know, it may have been Atlanta. Um, but DC, I mean, we still have a pretty healthy market. And I think I was actually really, I felt really lucky during COVID to be living here because it was an election year. And so we had a lot of political work still yeah. um, in this little bubble that we had. And there's a lot of documentaries just because there's a lot of people in positions of power here yeah. uh, that don't don't really want to fly and so productions come here to like interview senators and representatives or lobbyists or people that run think tanks that kind of thing and um i think dc also can be very photogenic and patriotic in an american sense and so a lot of times there's commercials that want like the backdrop of the capitol or the washington monument or the white house and that kind of thing 
but I, I I do think that DC will never be able to get as big as those places just because there's so much like red tape to film, especially in the city proper. And it's like, it's a really difficult place to shoot large productions. Mm-hmm. Um, like for instance, if you want to film on the national mall, like there's the park police, there's the DC Metro police. And then if you like go towards the Capitol, there's the Capitol police, um, things like the Lincoln Memorial, you know, like you can go up the first le- uh, level of steps, but they won't give you a permit to go up all the way up the steps and that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. And, or like, you don't need a permit if you don't have a tripod, but if you're going to put a tripod down, then you need a permit. And like, who do you get the permit from? Cause there's a, all those different jurisdictions. So I think that kind of precludes DC from ever becoming a place where they're going to shoot movies all the time, you know? Yeah. And so do you, do you think moving, moving to Atlanta would maybe be an option? Uh, yeah. I mean, my wife and I, we've talked about it a lot and, um, we bought a house in 2017 and we talked about it before then. And then like after COVID hit, you know, it felt like kind of a reset point for a lot of people, including myself, like an opportunity to kind of, you know, is this where we want to be? Is this what we want to be doing? And so we had that conversation. Um, both of our families are from this area though. Mm -hmm. So like on a personal level, it's kind of hard to leave that behind, but on a professional level, like I would love to move someday to a market like Atlanta or New York or LA or like Albuquerque is growing a lot now too. Um, yeah, you know, to work on these bigger projects. Okay, when with more with more than three DPs. <laughs> well, at least you're probably you know one of two ACs in in the area then, so that's pretty good. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's the advantage, right? Is that there's less people doing what I do, so I get better access to the interesting projects, and frankly, I get paid a little bit more than I think some of my brothers and sisters in the more popular production cities. Uh, um, because we just established that you did join the union um, I always like to ask this um, was it a, you know, a tricky process for you um, were you grandfathered in were you lucky um, just give us a quick uh, rundown of your story of how you got to join the union I joined the same way everybody else has to join so I spent my time compiling call sheets and pay stubs and emailed it in and Then I didn't hear from them for a couple of weeks and messaged somebody and said, Hey, do you know anybody at the union who can, you can like poke and prod? And then they did. And I heard back from them the next day and they took my money. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and when, uh, when did you join? What, what year did you? <laughs> Actually this week. Oh, so super recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Then. Oh. Yeah. Thank you. Do you feel better now or is it more pressure because you spent so much money on it? <laughs> Um, I'm lucky enough that I already have like my first union job booked up. So that's helpful. I mean, it got to the point where like everybody was asking me, are you union? Are you union? It just kind of made sense. Um, and I was planning on joining before COVID and then COVID hit and then it's kind of like punt it for a year. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, no, I feel good. I mean, it was a long-term goal of mine and one that finally kind of lined up in terms of making financial sense and having enough contacts in the union that I felt like I would get, um, get use out of being a member. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I, I kind of thought you, uh, you had been, um, a member for, for a while longer because I think Watchmen was 
2019 i believe uh, or it was released at least in 2019 i'm not sure if they if they shot in 2018 uh, already um so i thought you kind of had to be union to to be able to work on those on those kind of shows yeah that's a fair question um so technically speaking and i know that we are kind of worried about that because it is a union production um we were hired by the visual effects department as like a vendor though so like i wasn't working as evan luzai the freelancer mm -hmm. i was working uh for this company as an employee of this company for as a vendor for watchmen for visual effects so technically we were in the visual effects department that's how we were listed on the call sheet that kind of thing okay that's that's super interesting um yeah so they still had their their whole like camera department on set and when it came time to film like our stuff like they would take over our a camera huh. and like i didn't do any focus pulling or anything on that shoot okay wow so there's always some loophole um i worked a couple uh union jobs in uh, in georgia just because it was a right to work state and i never never joined the union um yeah i mean the the biggest loophole that i took advantage of a couple times is um I would get hired on a union job and nobody would ask me if I was a union. So I just showed up and did the job. <laughs> I actually, uh, now that you say it, I worked on a commercial in 2019, I believe. Uh, it was a big commercial, man. And the, the AC who brought me on, he just kept telling them, he's like, yeah, he's union, it's fine. He's fine. And then he just said, like, in the paperwork, it's just, just say you're union. No one's ever going to ask. And nobody did. So if you're listening, guys, yeah, I, I just, just unhear it. I'm sorry. But... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't recommend like exploiting these loopholes, but at the same time, it's like it, it wasn't my responsibility to out myself, you know, and I didn't want to turn down the work and I paid the union dues like they took it out of my paycheck and I didn't say anything. Yeah. So they got their part. All right. So, you know, if you're listening, there are some loopholes, um, you know. <laughs> familiarize yourself with those if you're in the united states <laughs> they, they eventually got my initiation fee anyway exactly eventually we'll, we'll all get sucked in um uh, let's move on because i'm you know i'm super curious about um you know the the black and blue um i mm -hmm. uh, i mean first of all thank you dude for doing this thank you for you know um i'm not sure Uh, how long you've been doing this exactly but it's amazing that you're still doing it um, and that you're educating so many um, you know young people that that start out in this industry as well as the older ones um, and you know I think the cool thing about this is that you're adding a certain level of quality um, because when people read all these um, tips and tricks and It, you know, eventually we'll just make them a better AC. And I think that's what we're all looking for. If we get a new second AC on set, it's amazing when they have just a certain, uh, you know, palette of standards that we can rely on. And, um, you know, they just know how things are being done on a film set. And I think a lot of that is down to, you know, blocks like yours where they can gather that information. So really just thank you for doing that. Um, But tell me thank a little you. bit. That's, that's very nice of you to say. Thank you. No, really. Thank you. And but uh, tell me a little bit. But like, when did you when did you start it exactly? And uh, initially, where did the idea uh, come from? So, the black and blue actually started as like a portfolio website of mine in college around 2007. 
and the idea was that I added a blog to it because, you know, that was kind of like the rage at the time that I would update the blog with, you know, scripts I would write or photos I might take or short films I'd make, that kind of thing. Mm. Well, in 2009, as we talked about earlier, I got on my first feature film and I started learning about camera assisting. And then I realized there was so much that I really just didn't know. Like, for instance, I went to the uh, pre-light day and I walked on set and I, like somebody said something about asking one of the grips. And I was like, I don't even know what a grip is. Like, is that a piece of equipment or, oh, you're talking about a person? <laughs> um, so... I started writing about my experiences learning to be an AC on this personal blog of mine, you know, just kind of like a diary almost just because I enjoy writing and I just thought it was interesting. It was interesting to me to learn. So I thought it must be interesting for somebody else to read about it. And um, those posts started to gain a little bit of traction and then I also started to realize that there really wasn't much information out there either on the web about below the line production and the books I didn't really have, wasn't really exposed to. And I mean, so there was like lots of info on the web about film criticism, film theory, Hmm. big picture stuff about how to make a movie. Um, But there wasn't a lot of like practical details about like how to fill out a time card or like whose job it is to like clap the slate. And what you could find was like buried in forums um, and forums, I mean, they're really great. They, they build good communities. Focus Polar at Work has a great forum. But unless you check them every day, like it can be difficult to surface specific information. Mm. So I noticed these posts were getting popular. So I started writing more how-to posts, sharing information I was learning from mentors and from books I was reading, like Doug Hart's book or David Elkin's uh, The Camera Assistance Manual. And just talking about like, you know, my experience navigating the industry as somebody new to it. And then I think I lucked out that this coincided with like the digital cinema revolution and the red one. And there were a lot of people in my generation that were kind of looking for resources online Mm. about how to use those cameras and how to get into this industry that suddenly became vastly more accessible now that it wasn't exclusive to 35 millimeter film and 16 millimeter film. And um, yeah, just as the profile of it grew and the camera posts became more popular, that's when I, at some point, I don't remember the exact day, it was probably around 2010 or 2011, I decided like, okay, it's gonna be a camera assisting block. It's no longer about me, it's about camera assisting. Wow, so it's been over ten years, uh, you know, in that current in that current state for just being for for ACs. That's incredible, man. That's yes. really incredible. Yeah. Wow, and um, it it always has been, and uh, up to this point, it still is. Um, it is ad free. It is payroll uh, paywall free. Um, it is not subscription based, um, which I think. I just love the idea um, of not trying to exploit the system, even though I wouldn't blame you if you did. Um, right. But like to this day, like what, what is your, you know, uh, what is your main motivation to just keep it going and, and keeping it ad free and, um, you know, really not having like pop up advertisements everywhere and all that. So there was a period of time where I kind of went through that stage of it, where I did have ads. It wasn't very long. I mean, in the beginning, like I said, it was a personal thing and the motivation was just to write and to share, 
my knowledge just because I had an inherent urge to do so. And then at some point, to be totally candid, like I saw an opportunity where I was like, oh, this is getting popular. Maybe I can make some money from it. And then that became a motivation as well. Not the primary motivation, but it certainly was appealing. And I did make some decent money from it. Almost always it was like enough to to keep scaling it further. You know, I was never like making enough money to like go buy a car or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was like if I made an extra $100 from the blog that month, then usually I was like, okay, now I can download the, or like pay for this plugin that will help me make it run faster Mm. so i was always putting that money back into the blog um and then i heard from a few trolls that would like comment on my posts and be like oh he's just doing this for like ad clicks and stuff like that and i didn't like the idea that people thought that i was doing things for money so partly out of spite i just got rid of all the ads Mm. because i also wasn't making too much money from them anyway so it's kind of like the reputation hit wasn't worth the like small financial gain. And then ever since then I've kept it ad free. I, I do still make some money from like the pocket guides, my old pocket guides. And like, I have affiliate links to Amazon. You know, if you go read the post about like toolkits and stuff like that, if you click one of those Amazon links and you buy it, like I get a cut of that. Um, but the main motivation these days is just like people like you who come up to me or people on set who come up to me and tell me that it's really helped them. And I kind of feel like it's it's still helping people. You know, I got an email from a, a woman in Morocco a couple of weeks ago saying that it's really uncommon for women to be involved in their film industry and that because she read my blog, she got on set already knew some stuff and like all the men in her department were really impressed with her awesome. and that it really helped ease her fears about entering like a male dominated workforce, especially in uh, a country like Morocco. Yeah. And I mean, like when I hear things like that, I'm like, well, of course I have to keep it live. Like it's, it's helping so many people. And so that's the main motivation is that I, I really enjoy the fact that people do still get something from it. And like you said earlier, you know, that feeling you get when a second AC asks you how to do something and you get to teach them and Mm. watch them learn. Like it's, it's like that on just a bigger scale. And that's really satisfying to me personally. And it, you know, makes me feel like when I leave this earth that I'll have left something behind yeah that's however small that is yeah i and i wouldn't even say it's small it's like you know within within our community i would say that's definitely uh, quite the the legacy because i really think like especially in the united states um i don't think i know a single ac who doesn't know about that that website so um yeah it's, it's definitely a big a big thing um have you uh noticed um because i think let me i wrote this down somewhere here um there's 50 at this point there's 56 pages of blog entries and that's that's incredible um have you do you feel like you you've written more in the beginning or do you write more now or is like you know is it really like you know depending on on how much work you have at the time like how how much do you write stuff oh it's 100% wrote way more in the beginning, like probably set an impossible pace for myself to ever keep up with <laughs> okay. at the beginning. <laughs> um, nowadays, like I, I wish I had more time to write for it, but as I've gotten older, you know, I have more responsibilities. I got married. I have a dog. 
I own a house. Um, so there's just a lot less free time to sort of pour into uh, posting on this blog, um, which is one of the arguments for like trying to monetize it is then, you know, then you can justify that time a little more. But yeah, I think, you know, at some point I had a veteran cameraman and this may have been like six or seven years ago, a veteran cameraman who I won't say his name, but he sort of shamed me for writing an article and claimed that I was just regurgitating other people's advice. And he accused me of being too young to know what I was talking about and that I was doing a disservice to people like him, like older ACs, by teaching younger ACs potentially wrong ways to do stuff or uh, not including all the nuance. And um, that hit me pretty hard. You know, like I felt like he wasn't totally wrong. Like some of the advice I was writing about was definitely echoed from other sources. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about earlier, I, I felt like I kind of fluked into my AC career and so I didn't spend as much time paying dues as others. And so all that kind of stuff kind of exposed this imposter syndrome I felt mm-hmm. um, of like, oh, like the, the blog got really big and I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm the right emissary to be giving this advice, even though people are interested in hearing it. And so when I read what that guy wrote, like it really kind of affected me and I decided, okay, I'm going to slow down posting and I'm going to focus on actually doing the work. And uh, ever since then, I have not been posting as much, but it's kind of ironic because now I feel like I have, like I don't suffer from imposter syndrome anymore and I feel like I have all the knowledge and experience that I need to, to be able to share and I just, it's kind of cruel. I don't have the time to do it. Yeah, yeah, that is hard. Um, wow. Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it feels like to me, I would say it's, you know, just having, being able to reflect on um on what you've written you know up to that point and uh kind of like you know questioning yourself and saying like well you know maybe this guy has a point um i think you know you learn from that and i think that in in itself um i don't know it's just i i think it's amazing that you that you realize that and then you say okay well maybe i need to slow down and maybe like i need to put in the work first and then you know actually just write about it when i when i know a little bit more um but i think you know and overall you know it always came from the right place you know you were just trying to uh help so i don't know i think it's a it's a maybe a valid point at that time but i think it's also really great that you were able to you know to kind of really question yourself and um I don't know, and change and change it a little bit. So, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and you know, he wasn't a hundred percent right. Like, I was always very careful to not write about things that I felt like I didn't have experience or authority to write about. Huh. So, if you go back, like, there's not a lot of articles about focus pulling off of a study cam because at the time I just didn't really have a lot of experience doing it. People would request it, but it's like. Yeah, I could compile advice that I've heard from other people, huh. but unless I lived through it, I never really wanted to write about it. I don't know, but I also 
I always had the feeling, um, and I would be lying if I would say that like I've written every single blog entry because um, I haven't, but um, quite a lot. I would be impressed if you had. <laughs> um, but uh, definitely quite a lot over the years. Um, and I never had the feeling that you were like trying to, like, you know, this is the way and you got to do it. I just always had the feeling that genuinely it just came, you know, from your experience. And you would just say like, hey, you know, this is how I learned it. And I think it makes sense because... Um, and then, you know, if, if you're an AC yourself, you kind of read through that and you go like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely, some, you know, some, some things maybe I would do differently or whatever, but you know, there's, there's a lot of sense in what, in what he's saying there. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I never, I never had the feeling that, you know, I felt lectured or whatever by someone, um, who doesn't really know what he's talking about. Um, you know, well, especially I not think, in a way, I think sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, this guy, I've since learned, kind of has a reputation for being a little crusty, shall we say. Oh, okay. So, um, in retrospect, you know, I think he was a lot more wrong than he was right. It's just at the time, it kind of, uh, I was, like I said, I was suffering from that imposter syndrome, and he just kind of had, like, poked a nerve in me. Okay. Um, but yeah, looking back at it now, like I, you know, I think everything I wrote, I still stand by and I think it was fair to say, and maybe I wasn't the ultimate authority in pulling focus, but I had done it enough that I felt like I could tell other people how, what was helping me to do it better, yeah. you know? Well, I can tell you that it, it, it has always been better than, you know, a lot of the things that you see nowadays where, you know, everyone is a, is an expert now and everyone has like a, I don't know, a YouTube masterclass of like, you know, being the best right. clapper or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, but, you know, it's now I have the feeling that a lot of people who are in no position to give any tips, um, <laughs> how about, to, you know, to, to be a professional in this industry um, and, you know, they're, they're trying to milk it and make money uh, off of it. And I never had the feeling reading your blog that that was the, that that was the intention. So, you know, well, the other thing that uh, sometimes frustrates me too in the in the more modern blogging world is like there's not a lot of room for you know everything's so black and white and so I feel now I have to cover all these subtleties and nuances because so many people want to be right or like prove you wrong mm. on the internet and so for instance if I like wrote an article tomorrow called why using a manual follow focus is a good skill to have I, there'd be several people who want to tell me like why it's not that important or why it's a waste of time, e even if my post doesn't contradict those opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a lot more effort that I have to expend when I'm writing now um, to sort of cover all these like edge cases uh, that the internet is inevitably gonna point out to me. Okay, well now talking to you, man, I, I'm I'm really anxious about like what people are gonna say now. Uh... You know when our focus pull at work podcast is going to come out and uh, and deal with all that. Oh man! Um, Don't at me. <laughs> the two questions I um, or let me ask you the, the two questions I always like to ask at the at the very end. Um, over the course of your entire career, what do you think has been the best uh, piece of advice that you have received from another AC? So I've been asked this before, and it's like, it's a really hard question because I feel like I have a terrible memory. But one thing that continually pops up in my mind is I was on a shoot for 
a commercial for a hardware uh, hardwood floor company and I don't think I was doing a great job like I was really having a bad day um, just like not pulling focus very well you know stumbling over getting equipment that kind of thing and the DP you know I could tell the DP was not happy with me and then the director was just kind of a jerk anyway and him and the DP had a very antagonistic relationship and they were by the end of the day we were behind and they were yelling at each other I was getting flustered and my friend who is the DIT who is a former AC um kind of could tell that I was not in a good headspace and he, we looked over and the director and the DP were yelling at each other and he kind of looked at me and he was like you know it's just not worth getting that angry about anything that we do like we make movies we make commercials like it's not worth getting that upset and so that kind of gave me a 180 in my mind that day of like okay yeah I'm having a bad day but at the end of the day I get to go home you know, worst case scenario, I never work for this guy again. That's okay. It's just one day. And maybe the commercial isn't that great. Oh, well. And so I've always felt like that was really good advice, which is it's not worth getting too angry or upset about. You know, we're going to have bad days. We're going to have stumbles. We're going to have failures. And you just kind of got to take the lumps and start over on the next job. Yeah, I think that is, I think that is very good advice. Um, it, it is one of those where, I don't know, it, it does happen every now and again. And I think, because I used to beat myself up over like, you know, having a bad day or just even like making like one sort of major and nothing too crazy, but like, you know, a, a bigger kind of mistake. Um, sure. And I like maybe you put the wrong lens on the camera or something like that. Yeah. Or maybe slightly worse. Who knows? <laughs> um, <laughs> but having those, um, yes, you got to learn, I think. And that's just a learning experience, I believe. It's like over the course of time, you will realize it's like, well, yeah, everyone makes mistakes. You will notice other people having bad days. Um, but uh, I I always think it's very important to be able to still reflect uh, on your day and you know kind of be honest with yourself and also like do point out like just to yourself do point out the things that maybe didn't go so well. So yeah, learn not to beat yourself up. Um, you know, still realize like you know you're being an AC and you're working on movies or commercials or whatever it might be. And that's amazing uh, in and of itself. Um, but I think it really helps to like, at the end of the day, look back and say like, okay, there were a couple of things today that just, where I just, it, it just wasn't good. I, I, I should do, I should do a little bit better tomorrow. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. Don't, don't be, don't beat yourself up over it. Yeah. And like, what can you do to fix it either for the next job or for tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I used to, early in my career, I used to like write stuff on my hand all the time, like especially when pulling focus and I was getting used to the whole come together, drift apart idea of pulling focus. Mm -hmm. I would like draw arrows on my fingers. Okay. So I knew which direction to pull based on which direction the talent was going. Um, uh, one great thing, you know, we talked about good habits earlier. One good habit I like to do at the end of the day is, 
ask my department, are there things that could have gone better for you today that I can help fix? You know, I especially like to ask it of DPs, you know, like, what did I do today that you either didn't like or you thought I was not so good at that I can fix? And then I also like to ask like my second AC, you know, like, am I not communicating well enough when I need you to do this sort of thing? Or like, am I putting too much on your plate at these certain moments? Like just having that open feedback loop, I think helps all of us get better. Yeah. And I think that's actually amazing, especially asking um, the people who are working, you know, under you, if you will, um, just to get some feedback in terms of like your leadership quality, because I always think, um, I mean, some people might be like natural, uh, great leaders. Um, but I feel like that's my biggest learning curve is like, how do I, uh, lead my department? Like, how do I make sure that every single one of them comes back, um, uh, tomorrow and is just still happy to be there? Um, Yeah, so I think that yeah, that's really and, that's a really good a good thing to do. And when you ask them that, you know, it gives them ownership over their job, mm -hmm. which I think leads to them doing better work for you and for the whole department and then for the whole set. Yeah. Awesome. Um and if uh and if you could pass on any sort of advice, you know, for the for the new kids out there in the camera departments in the world, uh what would that be? I would say to focus, no pun intended, <laughs> but um, f focus on solutions. So I, my film professor in college used to say, creativity is problem solving. So like the number one skill I like to see in ACs that I hire or work alongside with is like resourcefulness. And a lot of that comes with, okay, there's a problem, you know, maybe a cable broke and we don't have a spare. Hmm. How do we fix it? And it's less like, oh, woe is me, like, okay, shut down the camera for the day, we can't shoot anything. It's what can you do as quick as possible to fix this problem in a way that we can move forward, at least until we can get the, the best possible solution. Um, so that would be my advice. Dude, I love it. Um, well, uh, that actually brings us to an end uh, here. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if every, if anyone's going to be mad at me because this podcast is way too long. But um, <laughs> you can do part one, part two. Well, maybe we can do that. Actually, it's a pr pretty good idea. <laughs> um, but man, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I, I really me did, too. Evan. Thank you so so very much. Um, uh, please keep up the black and blue um, because you know there's still some great uh, value in that, and I think there always will be. Um, well, I hope you are going to make the right decision of, uh, you know, maybe moving to Atlanta or not in the near future, but it feels like you would have a lot of good things going for you down there. Um, keep in mind though, it is incredibly hot in the summertime. Um, <laughs> well, that's maybe the downside. Um, but dude, again, thank you very, very much, uh, for being my guest. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and, uh, hope we get to do this again, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. That was today's episode of the Focus Polar Work podcast with our guest, Evan Luzai. I want to thank you all for listening. And if you like our podcast, please consider to subscribe and leave us a nice review, you know, one with many, many stars, because uh, that will help us reach a lot more people. 
Should you have any questions, ideas, or criticism, please send us an email to info at focuspolaritwork.com. Should you have questions, ideas, or criticism, please send us an email to info at focuspolaritwork.com. Thanks again to Evan for being on the pod, and I'll catch you all next time. And until then, stay sharp, and thank you again for listening to the Focus Polar at Work podcast. Mm-hmm.